Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. It is nearly impossible to go through life without expectations. The human mind is wired to operate according to expectations. Even if a situation or experience is entirely new to us, once we've been provided with a description from someone who maybe has had that experience or been in that situation, once we've been provided with a description of what happened, of what it's like, we automatically start forming expectations, assuming we will have a similar or comparable encounter. And the more repetition we have with the same situation, or experience, the more subconsciously, the more we assume things in the future will behave as they did in the past. For example, when I wake up in the morning, I expect I will be able to have a cup of coffee. In fact, I don't just expect it, I better have a cup of coffee. I expect I will be able to have breakfast. I expect that I will be able to have a hot shower. That also is right up there with coffee. I expect I'll be able to get dressed. I expect that my car will start, and I expect I'll be able to get to work on time, which, by the way, all those expectations were met this morning. Our lives are full of expectations, even if we don't realize it. And more often than not, and this is what I think is really interesting, we realize the expectations we have when they're not met. And that's the rub, isn't it? When reality doesn't match our expectations, it can be hard to handle, especially when it's our expectations for other people. When those expectations are not met, the expectations we have for other people, our expectations can become dangerous, destructive, even sometimes, as we'll see today, deadly. As the saying goes that originated in 12-step programs, expectations are premeditated resentments. The expectations we have and often struggle to let go of even extend into the divine into our relationship with the Lord. For today, as we turn to the Gospel of Luke chapter 4, we encounter a community filled with expectations waiting to be met as Jesus strolls not just into town, but finally comes home. You see, Jesus has been living away from his hometown for some time now. On the other side of being tested in the wilderness, being tempted by the devil, coming out of his time of trial as we looked at last Sunday, Luke, you'll notice as we start our reading this morning in just a moment, Luke in verse, verses 14 and 15 briefly shares with us that after that, Jesus began his public ministry in Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Jesus' home base at that time, during this time, was the town of Capernaum. And from the other gospel accounts, we are better informed about his activity during that time. Activity that Luke, by the way, is going to double back to and review after this chapter. After sharing this story first, out of order. So what's been going on for roughly a year now? Jesus has gathered some, if not all, of his disciples. He's been healing the sick, raising the dead. Jesus has been teaching with a level of insight and authority no one has ever heard before. And all of Jesus' signs and wonders, all of his teaching are drawing crowds, capturing the people's imagination and support throughout Galilee. In fact, reports of his ministry have reached the people of Nazareth before he does. And so it's safe to say as we turn to our scripture this morning, there are great expectations awaiting him as Jesus at last returns back home. 
looking at your Bible or keeping your eyes on the screen, let's hear from Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in, the synagogue, in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath, the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It is the Sabbath, God's prescribed day of rest for the people of Israel. And the citizens of Nazareth have gathered for worship in the synagogue. Together they have sung from the book of Psalms, with one voice, they have recited the Old Testament version of the Lord's Prayer, the Shema, recalling from the Torah the importance of daily centering their lives upon the Lord. And now, Jesus, once a part of this community but now a visitor, Jesus is welcomed back as a local hero and an honored guest. Being a reputed miracle worker and an esteemed rabbi, Jesus is invited to read and deliver the message for the day. As he is handed the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, there is a growing sense of expectation as he steps into the pulpit. After all, these were times of heightened anticipation. The ministry of John the Baptist had triggered something of a grassroots revival. Messianic predictions were surging. And the growing buzz throughout Galilee was Jesus might just be that long-awaited Savior. We can imagine, right? We can imagine the expectations of that gathered congregation as Jesus prepares to read and teach from the words of one of the greatest biblical prophets, Isaiah. I mean, Isaiah was a prophet who divinely foresaw both sides, both sides of the story, both sides of the story of Israel and by extension humanity. Isaiah foresaw Israel's fall, the conquering of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. Isaiah saw um, 
the destruction of the temple of the Lord, the exile of pretty much all the Israelites from their homeland. Isaiah saw everything falling apart thanks to a mess of the people's own making. Their repeated tendency toward corruption and injustice. Their unrelenting posture of indifference and defiance toward God. And at first glance, what Isaiah sees, the first side of the story, Israel's self-destruction at first glance would also appear to terminate any hope for the rest of humanity, as Israel, you'll remember, was supposed to be the conduit of God's salvation and blessing for all the nations of the world. But as I said, Isaiah doesn't just see the first part of the story. Isaiah also foresees in the aftermath of a leveled city, in the midst of a fallen world, Isaiah sees the rest of God's story for all creation. And even in his day, Isaiah's day, as everyone wonders if this is the end, as the people fear that God has abandoned them, Isaiah catches a prolonged glimpse of an anointed servant of the Lord, a Messiah who will fully accomplish what God always intended, but which none had ever proven able to deliver, one who would act justly, who would love mercy, who would make peace and walk humbly before God. Now, I don't know the last time you looked at the book of Isaiah, but Isaiah's recorded words and visions from the Lord make up a rather long book. But Jesus, you'll notice, purposefully chooses a passage that's definitely from among Isaiah's greatest hits. From Isaiah chapter 61. And you heard an excerpt from it, written in the first person. This particular passage describes the self-revelation and divine purpose of the coming Messiah. He reads the sacred text aloud. Jesus fills the synagogue with the words of God's promise to Israel, God's assurance of the redemption of his people through one anointed in the power of the Holy Spirit. And the entirety of the good news Jesus quotes from Isaiah 61 is framed through the lens of the year of Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor. And again, if we don't remember or are not familiar, the year of Jubilee is outlined in Leviticus chapter 25. The Jubilee celebration amounted to the resetting of society every 50 years. The resetting of society through the release of all debts, the redistribution of all land and property, and a prolonged period of rest. And all of this was done to ensure that every generation of God's children had the means to rely on and make a living from what the Lord provided. Now, one more thing you ought to know about the year of Jubilee, the Jubilee celebration, is that sadly, and perhaps tellingly, there is nothing in the historical record to suggest that this divinely prescribed observance of the year ever appears to have been practiced by ancient Israel. Israel never followed this part of God's instruction, this reset. Nonetheless, against this backdrop of a great reversal a divine reset. Jesus, again, quoting Isaiah, invokes a vision of more than just forgiveness, but a vision of healing. You heard it, a vision of freedom, a vision of favor, a vision of transformation. And it's a vision intended to become a reality through the release of those trapped in poverty, the release of those in captivity, those under oppression, the healing of those who have been blind, who are blind because they've been unwilling or even unable to perceive hope. And having read aloud the word of the Lord from Isaiah, Jesus rolls up the scroll and prepares to give his sermon. And you heard Luke describe it. You can imagine this moment. All eyes are upon him. 
No one dares to move or speak. Everyone eagerly awaits Jesus' next words. And I don't know if you've ever noticed this before because this is maddening to me. But Luke, for his part, only provides us with the opening line of Jesus' sermon. Did you catch that? If you read it, it says, and they were amazed by all the things he said. We don't get to hear everything else he said. We just get the opening line of the sermon, but it's pretty good. And apparently for Luke, the opening line of the sermon is the only thing we need to hear. It's all we need to hear. And what is it? To a people, to a community, not just in Nazareth, but the entire nation of Israel, who've been waiting a long time for the fulfillment of something they had never bothered, had never been able to put into practice. Again, the release of all debts, the redistribution of resources, experiencing a kind of rest that actually heals and restores life. To those people, Jesus has but one message, and here it is. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing with the emphasis being on the word today, Jesus declares the wait is over. Jesus is explicit. The time is now. The time is now for those brought low in status. The time is now for those held prisoner by debts they cannot repay. The time is now for those unable to see God's abiding presence. And if you wonder why Luke places this story out of chronological order, At the very beginning of his presentation of the ministry of Jesus, Luke does this because this sermon encapsulates the whole of Christ's ministry. Everything else that we're going to see, everything else that's going to come next, it all comes back here. And it's this, that the good news of our salvation is more than a future promise of going to heaven tomorrow after our life on this earth, which still to this day happens to be the version of the gospel that most people hold on to. But you will see nothing of that here in what Jesus proclaims, which doesn't mean that it's not true, but that's not the good news. The gospel Jesus presents is the present execution of the Lord's plan to change this world, to rescue and redeem all of creation, to transform our lives today for tomorrow. But today, the salvation that Jesus offers is not just to save our souls when we die. And for many of us, that's exactly how we embrace the gospel. Saving your soul. Is your soul saved? But Jesus doesn't present a salvation that's just about saving our souls when we die. No, Jesus articulates a salvation that individually and collectively renews our minds, raises our spirits, transforms our bodies, and guards our souls Now, notice also that what Jesus announces here and will purpose to enact does not separate or privatize spirituality. Again, something else that's very rampant right now in Christianity. Jesus does not present a separate or privatized spirituality that's divorced from economic practices or matters of justice. The good news which Isaiah anticipated, which Jesus now proclaims as coming true, isn't metaphorical or theoretical. Someday the poor will get their due. Someday justice will be done. Someday those who are captives will be released. What Jesus presents here is not metaphorical or theoretical. Jesus presents it as tangible. Jesus presents it as pragmatic in its manifestation. Because, beloved, the reality of the gospel is seen in its effects, its impact. 
Later, think about this, later, and we'll get to this. We'll come back to this eventually, but I'm going to jump ahead to it now. Later, when John the Baptist will have wonder himself, is, is Jesus the one? And he'll send messengers, right? And ask, Jesus, are you really the long-awaited Messiah, the Son of God? Jesus will reply. Notice what Jesus says. How do you know that I'm the one? How do you know that I bring the gospel? He doesn't say, well, because you can just know your sins are forgiven, because you can just know you're going to go to heaven when you die, because you can put me in your heart. Jesus says, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. The unclean are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And good news is proclaimed to the poor. But my friends, the good news doesn't even stop here. There's a bit more, quite a lot actually, in that single opening sentence of Jesus' sermon that Luke shares with us. Because the whole of Isaiah's vision was not just of a messenger, but the whole of Isaiah's vision was of God, the king himself, coming down. And think about this. Let's remember what we heard. As Jesus reads aloud the first three lines of Isaiah 61, did you notice that all the declarations he reads end with the word, me? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Words that, by the way, coincidentally recall Jesus' baptism, do you remember? And that voice that spoke from heaven thereafter. As Jesus reads the first three lines of Isaiah 61, he's implicitly indicating Isaiah was talking about me. And if this is not obvious, to eliminate any confusion that when Isaiah had this vision and wrote these words that he wasn't pointing to someone else, notice again how Jesus starts his sermon, just that single line we get. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's fulfilled because Isaiah was talking about me. Jesus positions himself as the subject of Isaiah's vision, as more than just a Messiah, but as the return of the king. Now, initially, you heard it. Everyone in attendance responds with amazement. This is awesome. This is awesome. They respond in amazement at Jesus' message of the pouring out of God's grace. All is well. But then things take a turn. The affirmation of the people is short-lived as they begin to question Jesus' claims. You heard it in a single sentence. Uh, this is all great, but isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't this Joseph's son? Uh, Jesus is a carpenter's son. Yeah, yeah, perhaps he got educated, got his education, his educated teacher. Okay, but this is a prophet of God. This is Yahweh's anointed right under our nose. All this time, that kid, that kid, it's all too much for everyone to accept. And so the excitement quickly begins to give way to skepticism as Jesus senses the hometown crowd wants a sign. The hometown crowd wants proof. And isn't it interesting if we go back to the beginning of chapter 4 in the Gospel of Luke, if we go back out into the wilderness, this voice demanding a sign, this voice demanding proof, this voice demanding verification sounds awfully familiar. Jesus looks into the hearts and minds of his old friends, keep that in mind, his old friends and neighbors, and perceives the weight 
of the expectations they would place upon him, the prioritization of their own needs. And Jesus finally says out loud what everyone else is apparently thinking. Jesus basically says, when he says, physician, heal thyself and tell, do those things you did in Capernaum, Jesus basically says, well, since you supposedly healed others, that's what everybody's thinking, since you supposedly healed others, now take care of your own. Back at home. Show us. Entertain us. If you are the Son of God, since you are the Son of God, let's see something. But Jesus refuses to audition. He will have none of living up to their expectation. Instead, Jesus challenges their expectations by referencing two quick stories that they all know. Two quick stories they all know in order to deliver a truth they do not want to hear. And both these stories, real quick, are about people in great need. One of them, a soldier named Nahum, who was financially rich. The other about a woman, a widow, who was financially poor. But both in great need. And what these two people also had in common was this. They were Gentiles. They were outsiders. And what these two people also had in common was their willingness to receive the gift of God's grace through God's prophets at that time, Elijah and Elisha. And back at that time, back in the day, what Jesus is talking about is their posture of the willingness to receive what God was going to provide stood in stark contrast to the orientation of Israel to those who declared themselves to be God's people as they rejected Elijah and Elisha. And in rejecting, Elijah and Elisha excluded themselves from the experience of God's grace. So the hard but timeless truth Jesus is communicating is twofold. One, the generosity of God's love and grace extends beyond the borders of our expectations. Two, it is through the expectations we insist upon placing upon the Lord that we deny ourselves access to the love and grace that God offers. Just one chapter later, next week, in Luke's Gospel, Jesus will express the very same timeless truth this way when he says, I have come for the healthy. Not for the healthy. I have come not for the healthy, but for the sick. But as you heard, this is too much truth than the people of Nazareth can handle. As Jesus' first recorded sermon nearly ends in an attempted homicide. In their dogged persistence to make God's salvation serve their own purposes, the hometown crowd becomes an angry mob. The same people, think about this, the same people Jesus grew up with, the same people who knew and worked with his parents, now prepare to drive one of their own. The Messiah they've been waiting for. The Son of God they were just worshiping. They seek to drive him off a cliff, the very same hill on which their town was built. But Jesus, for his part, mysteriously slips out of their grasp and continues on his way, never looking back. But still, and why Luke places it here, there's a bit of foreshadowing in this moment of where, in the end, Jesus is headed. Because this won't be the last time Jesus will find himself in the crosshairs of the expectation of others. Nearly everyone Christ encounters will try to fit him into their pre-constructed box. Their pers pers perception of what the gospel, of what salvation, of who Jesus should be. 
For example, believing they had the scriptures on their side, religious leaders will attempt to make Jesus fit into their theological box, defined by how Jesus should practice the faith, as well as by who Jesus should keep company with and who Jesus should avoid and shun. And then there's the the more politically minded. Among the more politically minded, either those working with the Roman Empire, say the Sadducees, or those working against it, the Zealots, Jesus will be expected by both groups to take a stand, to play by the rules, to work the angles, or to mobilize a force strong enough to overthrow the whole system. Jesus' own family will at one point attempt to take hold of him, to convince Jesus to stop talking crazy and to start showing some good sense. Even those who follow Jesus, who watch him work, who sit under his teaching, will attempt to put limits on him, on how far he can go, on how wide he can reach. And many of them will eventually walk away when Jesus isn't going in the direction they anticipated. You know, you could say, That on the one hand, Jesus ends up on the cross because he willingly chooses to go there. This is true. Yet at the same time, ironically, you could also say Jesus is put on the cross. Jesus is betrayed. Jesus is denied. Jesus is misjudged. Jesus is murdered because he didn't meet the expectations of those he came to save. And make no mistake, this isn't just a narrative of the past. It's a story we can easily find ourselves replaying in our own lives. After all, if we struggle with putting our expectations upon other people in our lives, right? If we struggle with putting our expectation on other people in our lives, holding them responsible for thinking or speaking or acting in the way we've decided they're supposed to, If we can do that in all of our other relationships, then why would our relationship with Jesus be any different? We all have boxes we try to make Jesus fit into. Some of us put Jesus in a self-help box. They try to put a self-help box around the Lord, a devotional box, the inspirational Jesus box. I mean, we're all ears for presentations that package Jesus as our personal therapist or life coach, teaching us how to live our best life now but we're distracted or just completely tuned out when Jesus gets more prophetic, when Jesus gets more directive and tells us to die to ourselves for the sake of lifting up others in need. I mean, we love the comforting things that Jesus promises to me, forgiveness and eternal life, but we box out. We selectively ignore Jesus' teaching about how he promises to work through me, through my sacrifice and service. And so as a result, we only see Jesus in the people we like. We only see Jesus in the relationships that will benefit us. And we turn a blind eye. We don't recognize Christ. We refuse to see Jesus in the people we don't like. The people we don't agree with. The people we don't understand. We refuse to see Jesus in the relationships that don't benefit us. Another box many of us try to put around Jesus is a religious one. A spiritual box, dividing the sacred from the secular. This is where our relationship with Jesus tends to be exclusively personal and private. Separate and apart from our public, our professional life. 
I mean, we're fine with Jesus being in charge when we're here. This is church. Jesus is in charge when we're church. When it's church time, Jesus, you go right ahead. But when we're talking about how we do our jobs, how we run our businesses, how we exercise our politics, how we manage our finances, how we budget our time, how we treat our bodies, those are worldly matters, not heavenly concerns. Such concerns have nothing to do with how we exercise our faith in Christ. Or do they? We all have boxes we try to make Jesus fit into. Each of our boxes may be different, but every single box is crafted by the expectations we attempt to put upon Jesus, the perceived limits we individually and collective try to place on God, God as a part of our lives, rather than recognizing it is God, it is the Lord's expectations that are the very source, that are the very drive, the very definition of what it means to truly live. But the lesson taught in Nazareth is clear. Jesus doesn't come to live up to our expectations. Jesus doesn't come to live up to our expectations. Jesus comes to challenge our expectations. We make a grave error as the church when we present the gospel as Jesus came to give us a better life. That sounds really good at first, right? Jesus came to give us a better life. We make a grave mistake when that's what we say the gospel is. Because when we say Jesus came to give us a better life, that makes following Jesus sound like an option, a possibility. Maybe I don't want a better life. Maybe I'm fine with the life I have. This life works for me. I don't necessarily want better. Some of us do that in lots of other things in life, right? The old ways are the best. I don't want to buy the new and improved model. Make the gospel that Jesus came to give you a better life. Sounds like following Jesus is an option or a possibility. But here's the thing. Jesus didn't come to give each of us a better life where better is customized according to our expectations. No, the gospel according to Jesus is he came to give us life. To give us life. True life. To give life significance and meaning. To define what it means to live according to God's expectations. Which, just to be blunt, means that apart from Jesus, we may think that what we're doing is living. But what Jesus would say is, apart from me, you're just actually dying. You're not living, you're dying. Jesus doesn't come to give us a better life. Jesus comes to give us life. We know what life is because of Jesus. We know what life can be, what it's meant to be, because of Jesus Christ. And again, this, this is just one example. From as this moment forward in the Gospel of Luke, we get ready for it. You're going to see it again and again. Jesus will continue to surprise. Jesus will continue to shake up. Jesus will continue to shatter all human categories, all human formulas, all human logic. And repeatedly what you'll notice is Jesus will not conform to the expectations and demands put upon him. But instead, what we'll see Jesus do is extend the boundaries of God's kingdom beyond all communal, all ethnic, all social definitions. Beloved, where and how is Jesus not living up to your expectations? That's the elephant in the room, right? Where and how is Jesus not living up to your expectations, our expectations? I often find that question gets answered by a repeated prayer request that continues to go unanswered. 
Or for some, some of us, it may be even more than one prayer request, a series of unanswered prayers where Jesus is not living up to our expectations. Where is Jesus not living up to our expectations? For some of us, it can be, well, we're in this season. You know, it was a couple of days, and then it turned into a couple of weeks, and now it's been a couple of months. This season of perceived distance from Jesus, a sense of disconnect, where Jesus isn't revealing himself, he isn't talking to me, he isn't offering direction like he has in the past. Uh, Jesus, we have a, a way this is supposed to work. This is how you're supposed to make it clear you're present. This is how you're supposed to give me a sign. This is how you're supposed to speak. Uh, what's up? What the heck? Where is Jesus not living up to our expectations, beloved? Is it maybe a persistent wrestling with Scripture? You know, where Jesus doesn't say what we want him to say. Jesus isn't living up to our expectations because he's not saying what we want him to say. We want Jesus to say, hey, you know what? That's okay. You go right ahead. We want Jesus to say, hey, that's okay. That's good for you. But Jesus is saying that's not good for you. I don't want to hear that, Jesus. I don't want to hear that's not good for me. Jesus is saying that's not what I want for you. Jesus, I know what I want. I don't need you to tell me what you want for me. I know what I want. Or... Maybe it's not that Jesus doesn't say what we want him to say. Maybe Jesus isn't living up to our expectations because Jesus says what we don't want him to say. He's prompting us in, with, in thoughts. He's prompting us towards thoughts and actions that we resist taking. Give that person another chance, Jesus is saying. I don't want to give that person another chance. I've given them enough chances Forgive that person. I don't want to forgive that person. Open up your home to that person. Take the time to listen to that person. Sometimes Jesus doesn't live up to our expectations because Jesus says what we don't want him to say. Love them. Serve them. Don't hate them. Love them. But it's so much easier to hate them, Lord. They give me so many good reasons to hate them but I've given you the reason to love them. Serve them. Serve them. They walk all over me. They treat me like garbage. I got every reason not to serve them, but to get mine. Jesus says, serve them. And Jesus, you are not living up to my expectations. Somebody told me you came in to give me a better life. That doesn't sound like a better life to me. Maybe Jesus didn't come to give you a better life. Maybe Jesus came to teach you how to really live. You know, the thing is, these expectations, the boxes we attempt to put around Jesus, when you step back, they don't limit who Jesus is. They don't limit what Jesus will do. You ever stop and think about this? This happens right here. Jesus brings the good news regardless of whether it's received. The whole town of Nazareth tries to kill him that day, but it doesn't change the fact that the good news was brought. It lay at their feet. They threw it over the cliff that they couldn't throw Jesus over, but the good news was still brought. The boxes we try to put around Jesus, the limits, we don't limit who Jesus is. We don't limit what Jesus will do. Hear it again. In the expectations in which we try to bind Jesus, the limits of who we are willing to allow Christ to be and the limits of what we are willing to accept that Christ can do, we only limit ourselves. We limit ourselves in experiencing the fullness of God's grace. Remember the parable of the prodigal son? You're the elder son standing outside the party saying, I'm not going in. I refuse. Let me put this one other way. 
when we unrelentingly place expectations upon another person, when we unrelentingly place expectations on another person, a spouse, a son, a daughter, a mother, a father, a friend, whoever it is, when we unrelentingly place expectations upon another person, what ends up happening is we have a relationship with those expectations rather than the actual person. Think about it. We have a relationship with the expectations rather than the actual person. We miss out on encountering and experiencing the real, living, amazing, creative, and unique person because we are so wrapped up in what we expect them to think, to say, or to do. If no one said this to you, in many of the relationships in your life and mine, the relationships that are the hardest right now, maybe with your kids, maybe with your spouse, it may be with your parents, again, it may be with a friend, it may be with a coworker. It may, could possibly be that the reason why those relationships are so hard is because you're not actually having a relationship with that person, you're having a relationship with the expectations you have for them. And as they continue to not meet your expectations, you have no relationship. You want a relationship with your kid? You want a relationship with your spouse? You want a relationship with your mother, your father? your friend, your coworker, then let go of your expectations and actually embrace the person. But bringing it back, beloved, are we missing out on the relationship we can have with Jesus because we are so preoccupied, perhaps even unconsciously, preoccupied by the limits, the preconceptions we're imposing upon Jesus? Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, the person, or do you have a relationship with your expectations for Jesus Christ? Because as we read through the Gospel of Luke, something we're going to notice, and this is going to be very, very amazing, is the people who were closest to Jesus, the people who received the most from Jesus, were those who cast themselves upon Jesus without reservation. Nothing held them back from Jesus. They did whatever he said. I'm talking about people like Zacchaeus in Jericho. Remember him? I'm talking about blind Bartimaeus. We'll get to him too. I'm talking about the father named Jairus whose daughter was deathly ill. I'm talking about the paralytic and his friends, right, who dug through a roof to get past the crowds to get to Jesus. Beloved, we can't and we won't follow Jesus. We won't begin to follow Jesus if Jesus has to live up to our expectations. We only begin and continue to follow Jesus as we come to Jesus with a posture of discovery rather than an attitude of expectancy. Because what makes the gospel good news, what makes the gospel good news is not whether it lives up to our expectations. And again, oftentimes how we presented the gospel, we get into this whole idea of have you made a personal decision for Christ? Have you decided that this is good news? The gospel isn't good news because we decide it's good news. The gospel isn't good news because it lives up to our expectation. The gospel is good news because of how it reshapes our imagination of what is possible. Because of how it reshapes our understanding of who is included. Because it reshapes our vision of what our life together can be. The word of God, spoken long ago through Isaiah, has become flesh and in Christ is fulfilling the promises of God, breathing new, abundant, eternal life into our dying frames, drenching all creation in his grace. Ready or not, in spite of hard hearts or violent mobs, all debts will be forgiven. 
all in captivity will be released and lasting rest shall be granted. And God's favor will not privilege home or country, but it will bend towards justice and mercy, especially for the poor and needy. Despite trial and torture, come cliff or come cross, even being sealed in a tomb, the gospel will not be stopped. For the love of God in Christ cannot be bound by the limits of our expectations. We can only bind ourselves from being immersed in the unfathomable depths of God's love, not only for us, but for all creation by the limitations, the expectations we place on Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org.